This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to your books and critical theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Stuart Eldon from the University of Warwick about Foucault, the birth of power. So welcome to your books and critical theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Stuart Eldon, uh, who's published Foucault, the birth of power, uh, which is a prequel, a sequel <laughs> to a previous uh, book called Foucault's Last Decade. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, this... Much as with Foucault's last decade, this is a really interesting book. I think it gives a new perspective for both you know, students of Foucault, but also um, generally on on his life. And I guess the kind of the place to start would be to hear a little bit about where this book came from and perhaps its relationship to um, Foucault's last decade. Sure, I had not intended really to write these two books. Um, it was intended to be a single book, which was under the title of Foucault's Last Decade and was going to try to use the Collège de France lecture courses. So these are lecture courses that Foucault gave annually between 1970 and his death in 1984. And I thought that these would would be interesting to use to retell the story of Foucault's work in in the the last period of his career. And I drafted a version of this this single book, as as it was to my mind, and it was much longer than the contracted length of the book. So I went back to Polity Press that I was working with and said, Look, I think we've got two options here. One is that um, you give me another 50,000 words and I give you a book that is really on the Foucault's last decade. It's really concentrating on that period, but it uses the material from the early 1970s to introduce themes that will be picked up in the book and, and so on. And so then the other option is, I take the first two chapters out, give you a book that is only on the 1974-84 period, and we discuss what I do with the cut material, making into potentially another book or something. And they were very strongly for the second option, that I cut the material out. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's a mistake. I think this works better integrated and so on. But this, this was it. In, in retrospect, I think they were absolutely right. And I think that what has happened is, has led to two better books because of the result. But that wasn't where I was at the time. So I'm willing to accept I was, was wrong on that one. 
Um, so what I then had was, was after I'd finished the Foucault's last decade, which, of course, we talked about about a year ago, I had two long chapters, some notes from various things and so on. And I thought, okay, how, how would I tell a story of Foucault in the late 60s through to the mid-70s? And really, how does Foucault get from the archaeology of knowledge to discipline of punish, which are two books that are very different in in style and content, in, in, in what Foucault seems to be trying to do and so on. And so there's, there's early lecture course material, and I thought, well, now this gives me a, a sort of a, a broader canvas to expand the treatment. I don't have to confine it to two chapters to introduce a different book. I can actually develop and expand it. So it really came out of that. And it was partly to do with the order that the lecture courses were published. They weren't published in the order they were delivered, so the material for the early 1970s became available uh, later than the material from the 1980s, which is kind of a little bit strange in terms of the, the ordering. So that's why a book that treats a chronologically earlier period is actually the second book to be published. Um, but but it, it, gener- it was generated out of the research for the Foucault's last decade book. I think as well, there's something more, on the one hand, subtle, and then, I guess, um, quite substantive going on in this book, which is, as you gestured towards, that shift from, if, if I might characterise this crudely, Foucault as a sort of, sort of intellectual historian, mm. philosopher, through to someone who's, you know, making profoundly political interventions with his work. Uh, and it'd be nice to know a bit about kind of why that shift is interesting, not just in terms of Foucault scholarship of how do we account for this, but perhaps, as, as the book does um uh, in the opening sections, you know, a bit about the sense of he's not in France when the kind of profound political um, shift to taking place at the end of the 60s. He's, you know, for someone who ends up with discipline and punishes making these kind of direct political interventions into prisons and also to an extent mm-hmm. into uh, healthcare and psychiatry, you know, why is this kind of uh, intellectual shift interesting as a kind of um, political and, and, and public uh, story as well? I mean, I think there's many, many aspects to that question. So so when May 68 happens, Foucault is in Tunisia. He's been teaching in Tunisia for a few years, initially as a secondment from his post at Clément Ferrand. And he goes to Tunisia. He initially there, he gives lectures on Western philosophy, on the history of Western art. Uh, but he claims in, in interviews and so on that it was actually the political activities that his students were engaged in in Tunisia that was the political awakening for him. And he uses that phrase. He says it's the student protests there against Habib Bourguiba's regime that were really important to him. So it wasn't that he comes back to France after 68 and there's this new kind of febrile political atmosphere that he, he pulls makes contributions to that he engages with himself. But it's that the the um, the political awakening he had had in Tunisia meant that he was already starting to think about these kinds of things. And he, when he comes back to France in 69, he doesn't go back to Clément Ferrand that had given him this secondment, but he's part of this new experimental university of Vincennes. And this was set up in part after 68 as part of university reforms in France. Um, you get this sense of kind of let's put all of the difficult academics in one place. Um, but it's also that they can teach different types of, of topics. 
So even in the late 1960s, Foucault is teaching a course on sexuality, although there's an indication that he actually taught a course on sexuality at Clément Ferrand in 1964. So, um, but he also teaches a course on Nietzsche for the first time in, in Vincennes. And so there's a kind of a there's, a, there's an intellectual thing in terms of moving institution. There's the awakening from his time in Tunisia. There's a confession that he makes, I should begin the book with this, of I'm, I'm bored with the work that I'm doing and I want to do something else. So there's a whole set of reasons there. I suppose the other thing I'd say in, in relation to that is that Foucault in the late 60s, or sort of mid to late 60s, when he's writing the book we know in English as The Order of Things and The Archaeology of Knowledge, those in a sense are slightly different books to what Foucault had done before that. So if you look at the, the history of madness or The Birth of the Clinic, those are in many ways quite political books. And it's in a sense that the, the two books that immediately precede Discipline and Punish are, are slightly the exceptions to that. There, there's a lot of continuity between History of Madness and through to Discipline and Punish and History of Sexuality, the same with The Birth of the Clinic. Um, and even, even The Order of Things, there are themes in that book that Foucault explicitly politicizes in later courses. So he returns to early material and rereads it with new lenses and so on. So, so I do stress quite a lot of continuities as well as the shifts in, in Foucault's work. I mean, this kind of stress on continuity, I think is one that, uh, to come back to that duality of you know, subtlety and, and, and substance, I think is one of the kind of substantive mm. steps in the ground that the book makes. Uh, but also it does it, you know, through quite a subtle reading of things like his College de France lectures. And, and I think, It'd be interesting to, to hear about that, um, practically speaking, because obviously we, um, I suppose, as you teach kind of you know, marks to people or whatever, there's a kind of, you know, a, a younger or later, or, you know, a sort of initial uh, and then a mature, you know, with Foucault, you've got, well, at one point he's, you know, a kind of historian and then he is interested in power and then he becomes, you know, interested in himself. And this is related to the kind of sources people, you know, think or people associate with him, particularly in terms of historical periods and, you know, ideas of the self, as you show in the last mm. decade, you know, bound mm. up with the focus on antiquity. But quite early on in the book, you say, actually, he's quite wide-ranging, no matter what sort of period we're talking about. And indeed, the idea of a kind of periodization should be replaced with, with maybe continuities in his thought. It's interesting because people often say that Foucault himself is a historian of discontinuity. And they pick examples like the one that begins Discipline and Punish famously with the, the, the ritual execution, the public display of torture on the body of Damien's that, that would be regicide, and then contrasted immediately with the House of Young Prisoners with the very disciplined timetable and the, the regulation of the movement of the body of the prisoners. And for, you know, people say discontinuity, and Foucault's a historian discontinuity. He does something similar in The Birth of the Clinic with two different ways of thinking about um, medicine and the body. But actually what Foucault's trying to do in those books is to posit what appears to be a radical discontinuity and then to show actually how one shifted over time. And often the shifts are quite small if you, if you look at them incrementally to get to that very, very different system. And in a sense, I'm trying to do something similar with his work is, is that you can look at archaeology of knowledge and think this dry, dusty, theoretical tone to this radical call to arms in, in discipline and punish and this engagement. And what I try to show as, as much as I'm able is, okay, so there's incremental shifts that, that get to it. Now, one of the problems of, of this 
project on Foucault that I'm doing is that it's it, in these separate books, it looks like I'm periodizing Foucault simply because I'm following a chronological thing and the material is too big to, to be in one book. It's, it's, it's certainly now going to be three, it may be four in, in total. And so there's a risk that I look like I'm doing the periodization of Foucault, but I'm actually also trying to show the continuity of themes, the, the, the shifts over time. And, and the, the huge amount of newly available material that we have allows us to fill in the gaps between the books. So if you look at the books just in isolation and there's sort of six years gap or there's eight years gap between them, then it can look like a really radical shift. But actually, all the material that we now have can help to fill in that um, period in between. And you can see the incremental developments of ideas and, and dead ends and things that he doesn't pick up and develop and, and so on. But, but also the way that themes develop and build towards the next project. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you do in the book is, uh, you know, quite kind of gently points out that he was forever promising all kinds of books and, you know, all kinds of projects and, you know, like these six or seven and, you know, some of them pay off sensationally, some of them just disappear. Um, I guess one of the things to ask in terms of what you've been saying is, is for a practical example. And I guess the really straightforward one is this emergence of power mm -hmm. as, as an idea. But really interestingly, early on in the book, you talk about the emergence of power through readings of, you know, Greece and Sophocles, Oedipus, as opposed to, you know, prisons or ships of fools, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's interesting. I mean, the, those examples come from the first course at the Collège de France, which is was called at the time The Will to Know. But the title of it is, in, when it was published, was Lectures on the Will to Know, because otherwise it would be confused with the first volume of the History of Sexuality, which has the same title. And... That course begins on 9th of December 1970, which is one week after Foucault gave the inaugural lecture, The Order of Discourse. And, and really, we need to read The Order of Discourse and that lecture in the world to know together. And so in that inaugural lecture, Foucault sets out a, a broad program, some things he, he does and many things that he doesn't follow up on. Uh, and then he starts to go off on this, okay, how do we understand this notion of the world to know? What's the relation between truth and knowledge? What's the relation increasingly between truth and power. And his examples are quite wide-ranging. That course is, in some ways, is less thematically um, focused than some of the other courses that he gives, where he's got a very clear problematic that he's trying to explore and examine. And he, he comes up with all sorts of different examples. I mean, what I like about that course is that it, it shows that Foucault had a really detailed understanding of ancient Greece far earlier than most people had credited him. There's this standard story that Foucault turns to Greece in the late 70s, early 80s. But it's clear from this course, from, from 19, late 1970 to early 1971, that Foucault has got a very detailed understanding of ancient Greece. It's the first time in, in publications where he's got a really sustained reading of Oedipus, um, largely out of Sophocles' play, Oedipus Rex. Um, and then there's a discussion of Nietzsche, and so there's quite a lot of different things going on in the course, but it is around this relation between knowledge and increasingly knowledge and power. Um, it's around shifts in how you might study these kinds of questions. And it, there is a real sort of sense of Foucault is, is thinking on his feet. He's trying to develop an idea. He's trying to get out of some of the issues that he was finding in some of the previous work. And he's exploring this to an audience. And, and that's a, it's a real privilege to sort of look in on what he's doing and how he's working.
But I should say with, with some of these early courses, one of the things that makes them quite difficult to read is that we don't have tape recordings of the course. So what we have in the first two courses are publications of Foucault's manuscript. And it's clear that, you know, as with many people, the script that you go in to a lecture room with and what you actually say bear a relation, but, but you don't just read every word. And Foucault didn't script every word. And so with those first two courses, we don't have what Foucault actually said. We have only what Foucault wrote as his prompts for what he might say. It's slightly different with the third course. There are no extant tape recordings, but we have a transcription of tapes that used to exist. But with the first two, it is on the basis of his manuscript. So some of the links that he may well have known how he was going to make a link between points two and three of a scheme or how he was going to make a shift from this topic to that topic, we just don't have that material. So so it can, it can appear more disjointed than, than perhaps it was in the lecture room. With these early sets of lecture courses, the first one in particular, and again, this you know kind of comes through in, in your discussion of in, in the book, the classic, uh, say classic Foucauldian understanding of power emerges, and this you know is it's kind of I guess sort of, uh, we understand today is a kind of productive uh, idea, you know, the production of cells of bodies, etc., you know, etc. Et and one of the things I thought was quite interesting is because we sort of know that you almost, you know, don't need to restate it in huge amounts of detail. And you actually offer a switch to think about where does repression figure mm. around this idea of power? Because, the, you know, again, you know, when teaching this kind of stuff, the position would be, we think of power as repressive. Foucault comes along and says, no, no, it's productive. But actually, you know, through um, the course of your discussions, you say, actually, there's something more sort of, subtle here um, around the idea of repression and an engagement with essentially kind of French history and how you know, rebellions were dealt with under the Ancien Régime, if I pronounce that um, correctly. So it'd be interesting to hear, I guess, the kind of Foucault's repressive hypothesis as much as the productive one. No, that's interesting. I mean, that really gets into the second of his College de France courses, which it's been published in French, but isn't yet translated into English. It, the, the title would be something like Penal Theories and Institutions, although Foucault says quite early in the course, and I really should have said Penal Theories, Institutions and Practices. And it, it's a, it's another one of these courses where we only have the notes, but it's a, and it's a course largely of two parts. There's a part that looks at these peasant revolts in 17th century France, and then there's a part that, that sort of goes backwards from there and looks at the emergence of the medieval state. Um, it looks at things like trial by ordeal. It looks at the notion of inquiry and so on. But the first part of the course, which is a very detailed reading of the what's known as the revolt of the Nupier, the bare feet revolt. And these were initially some of the people that were involved in it, hence the name, were the, the salt makers of the Avranche region who gathered the salt on the beaches and were walking barefoot. And so this was the, the name of the revolt. And Foucault provides a really quite detailed reading of this, which he doesn't discuss anywhere else in his writings. It's sort of, he, he does seven weeks, I think, of lectures on this, but then, you know, that's the end of it. He doesn't even mention it explicitly in the course summary later that year. It sort of seems like it was for a particular purpose and then he, he moves on. So he engages with, with a debate that was going on in French historical discussions at the time between a Catholic French historian, Roland Moussnier, and a Soviet Marxist historian, Boris Porchinev. 
And Porcheneff, in, in, in a book on um, popular revolts in France in this period, had sort of argued that this peasant revolt around taxation was really a kind of like a proto-proletarian revolt. He, he reads it through an economic lens, through a class analysis and so on. And this Catholic historian, Roland Musnier, in, in uh, his book Peasant Uprisings, but also in a book where he, he discusses Porcheneff in, in explicit detail, Porcheneff had just been translated into French at the time, was to engage with these themes and to say, you know, there's nothing like a systematic uh, a sense as Porcheneff gives it. You can't read class relations which post-date this period back into this period. The French state barely exists at this time to suggest that it was representing the interests of a bourgeois class. Well, if it was, it wasn't doing it very well. You know, this kind of argument. And so Foucault intervenes in this engagement between these historians. But while most of their work is what generated the revolt in the first place, Foucault is actually interested in, and then how did the French state put down this rebellion? And he has this reading about how the Chancellor, Chancellor Seguier, who was delegated by Cardinal Richelieu to, to get involved in this, and says, you know, this is actually an example of not really the French king, but the French courtiers or the French state putting this rebellion down. And he's very interested in the sort of ceremonial ritual performance of power through the procession of people and entering towns into Rouen and so on. And so Foucault is interested in repression as much as he is in the idea that there's a peasant uprising. But it is the most detailed discussion in a sense of an uprising against power, but then Foucault flips it and then spends most of his time talking about the repression of it. So there's a slight tension there in the sense between Foucault keeps insisting productive power, productive power. And yet what people had tended to say was, and the only time he really discusses productive sense of power is when he looks at antiquity for the later work on the care of the self and so on. Here we've got an example of him looking at it in the early modern period, but then he actually concentrates more on repression. So it's a peculiar kind of read, but it, but it's a fascinating reading. And it got me to read a French historiographical debate about how do you do history, how do you use categories and so on, which I didn't know about before. But but I went back and read who Foucault was reading, which which actually is a general theme of what I tried to do in this this work, um, to try to see, well, okay, so what was Foucault doing and why was he intervening in that debate and how was that playing out in France at the time and so on? Which which gestures I think towards kind of his methods. Uh, one of and this is true of any sort of master theorists, there is always the sense of, you know, they give us these books and to an extent they are products of their intellect. And obviously the you know kind of broader both practical sets of methods and social context for the production of these texts is what to an extent comes after when people write funny enough books, um, like the two you've written about it. But that direct intervention into here is a a debate within French history that, you know, um, Foucault's not just intervened in, but almost kind of used, I suppose, to, to think through um, some of his, his work on power, I think points towards both um, the way he was doing work at this mm -hmm. time and then how the way he was doing work kind of gives us uh, a theory of power. And one thing you talk about in a, uh, a section of one of the chapters around methodological issues is uh, is engagement with kind of um, possible theories of power that he says are not correct. 
you know, mm. the kind of the, the wrong true. things. So I wonder if um, now might be the moment to kind of say, well, what's his definition of power then? <laughs> but, but almost the sort of, uh, how does he get to it? Which I think is, is almost more interesting than what's his definition of power? I mean, I think he would, he would slightly um, sidestep that yeah. question and say, it's not there is a thing called power yeah, that yeah, we can yeah, analyze yeah. and define, yeah. but, but it's what are the power relations that are at stake in any particular given political, historical, geographical yeah. context and so on. And so a, a, a sense of power has to emerge from the study of, of a period. What I think is striking, just to go back to the course, the first course, the lectures on the world to know and the discussion of Greece, is that Foucault finds the shift, he says, later is the sort of shift from the early modern to the modern period of power is no longer concentrated in the figure of the king. It's no longer centralized. It flows throughout society. It can be productive rather than just repressive. And so he actually also finds that that shift in ancient Greece. So it's not a historically bound moment, but it's something that can emerge at different times and, and, and work in different ways. So Foucault is, I mean, as with the work on knowledge, he, he's, he's predominantly working with texts, whether these are archival materials or collections of documents or historical texts written in a, in a particular period, or in this example about the historiography of kind of historians who have tried to analyse this. And he's trying to look at them to say, well, you know, how did they understand things? What were the concepts that they were using? What were these concepts? How did they relate to practices? These kinds of questions. And he does this by a vast amount of reading. And if you only read the books that Foucault published in his lifetime, where often the sort of critical apparatus is quite minimal. And then you compare them to the lecture courses where the critical apparatus is quite big, but it's because it's been put in by the editors. And then what I've been doing is you read Foucault's own reading notes, the notes that he took when he went to the Bibliothèque Nationale pretty much every day and worked for several hours. Then you see that, that the, the, the fact that the books don't have many references is more of a product of the way that French people wrote at a particular historical moment than it is about the idea that Foucault is a, a careless historian who doesn't really use sources and so on. Foucault may well get things wrong, but he does do a lot of the kind of archival and historical textual work that he's often criticised for not doing. And the amount of reading material, and this is what's now available in, in the Bibliothèque Nationale that I've been working through, and I use quite a lot in, in The Birth of Power, it gives you a sense of the things that Foucault was reading, um, only a limited sense of exactly when he was reading because he doesn't date things and he files things thematically. But you can get a sense of, okay, so he's reading around these things and then from this he distills a particular set of points that come up in lectures or in the books and so on. So I think he's very much trying to see how these things, these power-knowledge relations, as he would call it, in, particularly in this period, how these come about from particular texts, from particular laws, from particular case studies of individuals or um, legal reforms or and so on. So so I think that would be the way he would approach that question of of, of power. Um, less to define it, but more to try to analyse well, what's actually going on, what, how are these things taking place, what, what's actually happening at all. It, it's funny, actually, but, you know, we're, we're talking about the period of, of the kind of the political, mm. uh, public intellectual Sure. And so far we've talked about texts, about engagements with ancient uh, Greece, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder, you know, 
the book isn't exactly structured like this, but I, I kind of get a sense of the second half or, or the latter chapters in the book are more to do with practice and yeah. public yeah. Uh, practice. And this kind of flows through, um, a, dare I say, a kind of re-engagement with medicine and psychiatry mm. um, away from, I guess, kind of you know, intellectual history uh, as an archaeology of knowledge order of things. And then actually some practical interventions, the, the GIP, the GIS, um, and I guess a kind of a sense of him being a public activist right. uh, as much as a, as a Bibliothèque Nationale uh, researcher or, or historian. So could, could you sort of talk through, I guess, the public Foucault and, and particularly with a focus on the organisational structures that he became part of um, rather than just... Because obviously in... Um, in the other texts, there is a sense of him participating in public debates and writing letters and stuff like this. But here, there is a sense of kind of almost building campaigning apparatus, right. particularly over prison and medicine reform. It's a big story. I mean, there's a lot of, of um, information that I think we have access to to tell that story. And I try in the, in, you're right, in the last three chapters to talk about his involvement in, for want of a better word, political activism. And the the best known part of that is his involvement with the Group d'Information sur les Prisons, the Prison Information Group, or GIP. And this was a group that Foucault was one of the founders of, that most of the meetings seem to have taken place in his apartment, that he wrote a lot of their texts, he spoke at a lot of their press conferences, he, he compiled documents. He, so Foucault was very much the active figure in that group. And the group ran for about two years, and their, their founding manifesto, which was delivered by Foucault at the same time as um, he was lecturing on the world to know, and there's a kind of similarity between language, which is quite interesting between these. And he says, it's not that we're trying to say this is how prisons should be reformed. That's not our job as, as, as concerned citizens, concerned intellectuals. We want to know what goes on inside prisons. Prisons are like a black box in French society. We just do not know enough information about what goes on. So... We're trying to gather that information. We want people that know something to give us some information so that we can compile this. But really, we want to give a voice to prisoners. And they do things like compile a questionnaire, which they distribute outside of prisons at visiting hours so that um, family members of prisoners can take it in, can maybe feed back to them about what what the prisoners are actually experiencing inside of prisons. Some of them were actually smuggled in and prisoners themselves would fill them out and they would come back and others would be filled out in, in terms of a kind of an oral version that was recounted to a family member who would then complete the form. And they would then present these and, and try to give the prisoners a voice rather than speak on behalf of prisoners. That was at least the attempt with it. And one of the things that's, that's less known in that story, I mean, that story is reasonably well known. It's narrated in the biographies. And certainly in France, we have a good collection of documents from that period that have been published. There's, there's going to be an English version of that um, fairly soon, I think. Um, but we also have that there was a group that followed the Prison Information Group, which was the Prisoners Action Committee, which was actually set up by prisoners and ex-prisoners. And Foucault was sort of involved as a sort of, bridging figure between one and the other, but then quite quickly stepped away. And the key figure in there is this guy called Serge Livrezet, who's a, um, had been an ex-prisoner and was involved in this activism. And he wrote a book on his sort of like a biography that Foucault wrote a preface to. 
Um, so Serge Livrezé and his wife, Annie Livrezé, were, were really important in that sort of successor group. And Foucault sort of saw this as it had a short shelf life of a group. He didn't want it to keep running. He didn't want the intellectuals of various kinds to, to dominate. He wanted to enable the prisoners to do things. Now, there's a lot of debate about how that group worked, and some of which is in English and so on. So I certainly talk about that group. But there was another group that Foucault was involved in that there's much less said about, which I wanted to bring in as well, which was this health information group, so the Group Information Santé, so the GIS. And this group, Foucault had less direct involvement in this group. And I'm not trying to say, you know, Foucault was the hidden Mm. superstar behind it or whatever. But Foucault certainly was involved in certain aspects of it. And this group worked on things like health of immigrants. Um, It worked on industrial accidents. Um, It worked particularly as part of a wider struggle around the abortion rights uh, debate in France. And so the group did things. So there'd been a famous letter that predates this group that um, Simone de Beauvoir had organised, which was which had appeared in a, I think it was in Le Monde, French newspaper, which was a, signed by a number of women saying, we have had abortions. Even though this is illegal in France, we are going to declare that we have had abortions. This was followed by a letter by a number of doctors saying abortions should be legal, signed by a number of medical doctors. Foucault, through the health information group, organised a, Uh, open letter signed by a number of doctors who had said, yes, we have conducted abortions, which is a step beyond simply saying abortion should be legal. So they did this as a sort of public declaration. Foucault talks about the reaction of the French government to this in one of his lecture courses. But then this group produced a, I mean, they produced a number of pamphlets, but one of them was on the abortion rights struggle. It was a pamphlet called We News of Auto, and it it didn't have a publisher named, and it was kind of, because it was advocating something that at the time was illegal. And this has first-person testimonies from women. It has some medical information about different abortion procedures. It has a lot of names and addresses of places, clinics outside of France where women could go to have a safe medical abortion and so on. And given the specialised nature of it, Foucault didn't write this. We know that. But Foucault and a couple of medical doctors were prosecuted. And the claim was, well, we've seen you leaving group Information Santé, health information group meetings, you must be responsible. And what I quite like about Foucault is he says, sure, I wrote it. Yeah, we wrote it. We'll, we'll take the rap for this. And he's clearly protecting people and saying, if you want to take down a professor at the Collège de France, then I'll, I'll take the rap for this. And so there's a kind of enabling and a use of his institutional position. Now, the health information group are not the only group advocating abortion reform in France as a particularly a group called Choisir Choice that was very important and various other um, groups led by women. But they were a part of this story and Foucault was a part of that part. And so I try and talk about that. There are other things where Foucault used his position to shield or to protect other people. So there was a medical doctor who was prosecuted for distributing a safe sex manual outside of a school or Felix Guattari's research journal had, had published an issue on homosexuality that they were prosecuted under the obscene publications laws and Foucault kind of spoke up on on behalf of these things so that sort of side of things I try and talk about as well which is there are parts of it in some of the books on Foucault but there was less material and particularly finding some of their publications which were not easily accessible in libraries because these were sort of um Samisat type publications that had been distributed illegally and I did eventually find 
the key publications and try to talk about those and the sort of the pamphlets and the brochures. And some of this material is in archives, but some of it um, had to be found different ways. So I try and add that into the story as well. I mean, could, could you... So it's in the book, gestures all of this, but it doesn't do it in a mechanistic way. But I mean, what do you think is the relationship between broadly these kind of political interventions and then a book like Discipline and Punish? Uh, because there's obviously not a sort of like, you know, He's campaigning in various modes, using his institutional position, and then the payoff is this book. You know, it, it clearly isn't that. But yeah, well, I'm quite interested in that to get a sense of what what is the relationship between the public Foucault and, and the Foucault of a text like this. And it's complicated. And Foucault, there's a story that Foucault actually delayed Discipline and Punish coming out because he didn't want it to be seen as, and now I'm going to write up, you know, this, I'm going to, you know, this, this sort of... We shouldn't use people in precarious positions politically as the examples for our theoretical work kind of argument. So, so he sort of tries to avoid that. And when Discipline and Punish comes out, it, it doesn't engage with the present moment in an explicit way. I mean, it has got that famous line of, you know, this is a history of the present. But it is of a very much an earlier historical period. And he doesn't make an explicit link except in a few sort of notes or a few sentences that you could read in a way. Okay, yeah, that's clearly yeah. what he's talking about. And, so on. and it, it's, a, it's an attempt to talk about a history that informs the way that we might then think about the present moment. But by the time the book comes out, so it's finished in August 74 and it comes out in early 75, Foucault's moved on. Foucault's already thinking about the next project which is really the history of sexuality he's already thinking about how that might play out and he's taking a much less politically activist role by that time he says at one point you know i've done my two years service like it's like a national service yeah. or something i've done my radical service now i'm going to move on and, and so the book comes out slightly detached from the activism and i think that was actually a deliberate thing that he didn't want it to seem like it was an instrumental oh he only got involved in in the prison activist stuff oh he could write a book yeah. on the prison so clearly there's a detachment there. There are various discussions about how this work fed in. Marcelo, Marcelo Hoffman has a book on Foucault and power, which is on the impact of the activism on the politics. And, and he does talk about the prison group, but also the stuff on Iran and, and so on. So I try to avoid any kind of straightforward, this leads to this kind of thing. But it's the it's the context in which Foucault is giving the lectures particularly. And one of the things I try and do in the book is is that sometimes I think we read Foucault's books, Foucault's lectures, Foucault's interviews, Foucault's activism, etc., as if these are discrete things. And by trying to say, so he was giving a lecture at the Collège de France in the morning and that afternoon he spoke at a press conference. What if we read those two things together chronologically rather than um, as sort of different genres yeah. of work? Can we see connections there? And I try and draw some of that out in the book, but without saying, oh, well, he wrote a book on the prison because of the activism. Yeah. I think he got involved in the activism because he was interested in the prison. I think. You know, so it's, it's a more complicated relation. Yeah. I mean, the, the logical way to end uh, discussion about this book is, so what's its relationship to Foucault's last decade and how do these things get, I guess, kind of foreshadowed and where are the discontinuities and breaks for word continuities. But something you said earlier has that, got me thinking, actually, what might be more interesting is, is where do you go next in terms of, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned three four book you know as, as a series so are you doing more i guess kind of chronologically related research in terms of say situating um the work on madness in its kind of context 
or are you going to engage maybe more thematically with with the archival work? What I, I guess, yeah. What what's the prequel to the prequel? <laughs> sure. I mean, just briefly on the um, the connection. I mean, there's a story that Daniel Defer, Foucault's long term partner, tells that, that Foucault finished his um, finished Discipline and Punish on the same day that he began the History of Sexuality, Volume One. And given what we know about Foucault's work habits, and it's entirely plausible that. I mean, it's astonishing that you can bring to the end one major project and then kind of begin the next major project without there being. But 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 that that does seem quite plausible. And so the break between the books is a slightly artificial one because it's a little bit well in the morning this one ends, and yeah. on the afternoon that ends, sort of type thing, and and very much intended to write to work together as yeah. books, as I said right at the beginning, that, that, that a lot of the writing for material for this book was done as part of the other one, and that then I, I put pulled them apart in order to elaborate much more fully what I do in this book. So, yeah, so the two books hopefully work together and you could work, read one yeah, after very, the very other true, and yeah. they, they do link up and so on. And I did think having finished these two books back-to-back on Foucault, I, I was done with Foucault for a while and, and I went actually went back and finished my book on Shakespeare, which I've been working on for a long time in sort of in parallel, and that's now done and in production. And I really thought I was sort of done with, with Foucault. Um, but the story which I tell people about this is that I, I was in Melbourne because I have a visiting post at Monash and bumped into a friend, Mark Kelly, who's another Foucault scholar. And Mark sort of said, well, what's next after Death of Power? And I said, well, probably Foucault in the 1960s. Mm. And I do a Foucault in the 1960s that will treat the period before this. It will do history of madness to archaeology of knowledge yeah. and it and Mark looked at me and said, you know what would be really interesting is Foucault in the 1950s. Mm. And I said, well, that sounds great, but it would be incredibly difficult to yeah. write because there's so little material. Foucault publishes very, very little in the 1950s. Most of the time he's um, in the late 50s, he's, he's in Uppsala, then Warsaw, then, then Hamburg. And he's writing his thesis, which becomes the history of madness. And so I said, it would be really difficult to write. But I went away thinking, but it would be really interesting <laughs> yeah. to write. And so that's what I'm now writing. It's a book called The Early Foucault, and it's on Foucault in the 1950s. So it's how does Foucault come to write the history of madness? So we have a very few texts that Foucault published in the 50s. Um, the long introduction to the Ludwig Binswanger um, in translation, a um, short book called Mental Illness and Personality, which he later revises um, quite extensively, and a couple of short essays. And that's pretty much it. There are a few other little fragments. But Foucault was teaching at the École Normale Supérieure and in Lille, and we have some of those lecture courses in the archive. Um, he gives a course on psychology, on existential um, philosophy and its relation to psychology. He gives a course on philosophical anthropology, which sort of feeds into his work on Emmanuel Kant and Kant's anthropology. Um, we have various bits and pieces of, of um, other things that he looked like he might have been writing towards at that time. Then we have Foucault's reading notes um, and various other sources. So what I'm trying to do at the moment is to put all of that together to narrate this story of how does Foucault come to write the book that he, he later claims is his first book, History of Madness. There is another book he wants to forget, but the, the sort of when does Foucault become Foucault kind of book. And and that's what I'm working on at the moment. And it's um, so I've been to Uppsala and looked at some of the material that relates to his time there. But I hope to go back and, and spend more time there, partly using the archive that Foucault used, the library that Foucault used. Um, 
there's material at IMEC, the Contemporary Archive in Normandy, from the notes from one of Foucault's students at the time from these courses, but there are also Foucault's own lecture notes. Um, there's the, the, the Binswanger. It's not just that Foucault writes the introduction to that, but Foucault is involved in the translation. So I'm doing work with the, the German and to the French to see, well, how does Foucault and Jacqueline Verdeau, who does the bulk of the translation work, how do they make choices between the German and the French? And there's another translation of von Weissacker that Foucault does at the time that I'm also looking at for those those things. So it's it's really kind of how does Foucault become the Foucault that we know through the history of madness, but it's using whatever sources we've got to tell that story. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Stuart Eldon from the University of Warwick about Foucault, The Birth of Power, which is published by Policy Press.